Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I'm so excited to have two very, very special guests onto my program. Uh, all of you probably have seen them on Gospel Tangents, including myself, and of course, you've seen them on Mormon Stories. Uh, these are two gentlemen who had a major impact on the trajectory of Mormonism. Uh, you know, I remember back in the day when we first uh, started uh, understanding genetics and being able to, uh, you know, uh, understand how it works. As a matter of fact, it's it's a remarkable story, the Human Genome Project and everything like that, and mapping these things out. Well, early on, uh, as this, as we were getting more and more information in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, these two gentlemen decided that they were going to use the latest science and in, in, in breakthroughs with DNA and try to then look and see if there is a genetic, if the, if, if the Book of Mormon story comports with the DNA data that they had. And uh, this was a very interesting thing because, again, this is all still new. In my lifetime, we didn't know anything about it. So it was really a big deal when these guys actually put this stuff out here. And matter of fact, Thomas, I believe I might have read about it for the first time in Indian country uh, newspaper. Um, I was a periodicals guy at Borders, and I remember reading that story and was uh, like, wow, this is a big deal. Um, and so that's why I want to have you guys on because it's, we're going on 20 years, on uh, close to 20 years now when this all happened. And you guys also recently uh, published a paper, which we're going to talk about. But before we go there, uh, first of all, Simon, this is the first time you've been on the program. Uh, welcome to Mormon Book Reviews. Thank you, Stephen. It's good to be with you. Uh, yeah. Pretty excited to have you on. And of course, Thomas Murphy, uh, people really have just so thoroughly enjoyed our conversations. I still get feedback from people all the time about your life story and also the important interview we did last year in regards to your response to Rod Meldrum and his Heartland model. Uh, welcome to the program, Thomas. Thank you. It's good to be back. So uh, before we get to the paper that you guys co-authored, um, I wanted to kind of just talk a little bit about, about a little over 20 years ago now, when you guys were starting investigating um, this DNA and the Book of Mormon connection. And, and this is the other thing, too, is that this is a story of two different parallel stories. You have Simon Southerton and you have Thomas Murphy who are doing this analysis of DNA and published papers. And then you have a gentleman named Rod Beldrum who reads this stuff and decides to start his group, which should ultimately become the Heartlander movement. And these guys, this part of their paper that they we're gonna talk about today is a response to that movement. But let's just go back in time and just talk a little bit about what got you guys, and I'm gonna have Simon, you answer the question first. What got you interested in following this uh, DNA and Mormonism link? Well, uh, my I started down this uh, sort of rabbit hole when I was a bishop. Um, I I work in DNA. So I was a DNA scientist, forestry scientist. I was familiar with DNA, um, but I just became troubled by an article I read in the Ensign, which talked about the global flood and how the, it was a real event, and genuine Mormon scientists um, believed that there was a real flood and I, I was just really quite troubled by this and the internet was just emerging so I hopped online and I found quickly found um, stumbled on within a, within a few days a, a whole range of DNA research papers on American Indians um, and I think over about a period of two weeks I'd accumulated about 30 research papers and it was abundantly clear that uh, in excess of 99% of the DNA of American Indians was clearly Asian in origin. And the other fraction, small fraction, one or 2% uh, 
was either from Africa or from Europe. Um, so I, I actually went for two weeks believing both the Mormon church, the traditional story of the Book of Mormon, and knowing based on my understanding of science and my understanding of the research I was looking at, that, that um, American Indians had no ancestry from the Middle East. So that was just complete double think in my mind for a couple of weeks. And then one night I went to bed very confused and I, we sang Book of Mormon stories with our children. And I think that just, just uh, heightened the emotional tension that I was feeling. Went to bed a very, very confused bishop um, and woke up in the morning and it was just completely resolved. I just knew beyond any doubt the Book of Mormon wasn't real history. So it all started right yeah. reading an article in the instant about the, a worldwide global flood that well, was, and you went down the rabbit hole. It's not, it's a, yeah, it's a, an article by Donald Parry, who is a, I think he's a Middle Eastern scholar. He has zero knowledge of science. Um, and uh, I've subsequently heard that Donald Parry uh, deeply regrets publishing the article because he's had a bunch of scientists knocking on his door and sticking their head in and say, pull your head in, mate. Don't ever write anything like that again. It's a load of rubbish. Um, yeah, so virtually every scientist at BYU that's certainly amongst the evolutionary biologists um, does not believe that there was a global flood fire you know, four and a half thousand years ago. It's just the, um, particularly on the genetic side, there's just, the, the, there's just zero evidence of a genetic bottleneck of such enormous scale four and a half thousand years ago and and uh, we, we're going to talk about Kennewick man and uh, you know there's just abundant evidence of of uh, connections through to um, huge populations of people thousands of years before the, the flood well, supposedly occurred how did yeah, these Americans get through the flood yeah, it's it's it is a, a real challenge, and I remember um, hearing this story in the past and just thinking and being really affected by the impact that it had on you. And basically, you just went went to bed one day and woke up and had it all resolved. And it's just a fascinating story. And Thomas, of course, we talked a little bit about your story because, of course, you uh, not only published a paper, but then you also actually were on some documentaries with some evangelical film producers to kind of uh, take on the Book of Mormon. Maybe just talk a little bit about what got you involved, and maybe, um, and then, and then, the, and, and then, just what got you involved, and also maybe we can talk a little bit about your your time doing that film as well. Yeah, well, my loss of faith in the Book of Mormon was a slower uh, process, and archaeology played a lot bigger role than genetics, which I, I came across later. Uh, so, you know, I I had already started questioning. I told kind of the story of. Of, of my encounters with evangelicals and, and, and that leading me to question one of the ways that I tried to, to uh, initially defend the church and then I and, and then began to question uh, the, especially the claims of the Book of Mormon uh, was when I went back to, to college and, and studying history and archaeology and anthropology more generally and in fact I was working on uh, in Yes, that would have been 1992. I was working on an archaeology dig in uh, the, the Heartland, uh, that is a, a Hopewell uh, site in uh, eastern Iowa, 
And the what we were finding in the ground looked nothing like the description of the, the cultures in the Book of Mormon. You know, there were no uh, European flora or fauna that we were finding in the ground. The, the technology uh, was not, we were not finding metals and chariots and uh, we weren't finding cattle and sheep and horses and so on. In, you know, and I was right there in, 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 in the ground, digging in the ground. And, and there's the, the culture we were uncovering looked nothing like the, the Book of Mormon. Uh, and so that kind of really sparked my interest in, in advancing my degree beyond a bachelor's degree uh, into a master's and PhD in anthropology. And, and that I did here in, in, in Western Washington. I'm in the Seattle area, uh, Coast Salish uh, territory. And here I went to the University of Washington uh, and worked on a degree in anthropology. Uh, and Kennewick Man uh, was found a few years after I'd started my graduate program. I started in 94 and Kennewick Man was found in 97. And so it would play a fundamental role in our backroom discussions in, in the anthropology department uh, and I, many of the professors that I was working with uh, were part of the Army Corps of Engineers assessment of the skeleton. It was a regular part of our uh, class discussions. Jim Chatters was uh, visiting campus speaking about it. Uh, Native leaders, uh, Armin uh, Minthorn and others from the Umatilla uh, were present at our conferences. Uh, the native scholars in particular were very active part of the Northwest Anthropology Conference presenting their point of view. So I was in, kind of embedded within a discussion of Kennewick Man uh, when I uh, was asked by Brent Metcalf uh, if I would write an article about DNA in the Book of Mormon. Uh, and uh, so that uh, kind of took me into that genetics arena, which had been part of my classes, but not an active part of my research agenda. I came across Simon's uh, story online of, of his uh, loss of uh, faith and uh, followed some of the trails that, that he had helped uh, help forge and uh, then published an article called Lamanite Genesis Genealogy and Genetics in a book called American Apocrypha, which I think I have right here. Yeah. Uh, and, and then we were asked to, to participate in a film. And I think, Simon, you were on that uh, yeah. DNA versus the Book of Mormon film as well. Joe Kramer. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so we, yeah, both of us participated in that. And also both of us participated in our co-author's film. Our co-author, Angelo Baca, who's a Dene and Hopi anthropologist and filmmaker who can't be here with us, unfortunately, today. He produced a film called In Layman's Terms. Uh, he was filming that, I think, about 2003, Simon, when you came to Edmonds Community College to speak. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, filmed it over the next couple of years. I went to New York with him and, and with uh, Kramer with the uh, Bible versus the Book of Mormon film. Uh, and so we, we, we participated in those films. Uh, so Simon, Angelo, and I collaborating goes way back. Yeah, uh, and DNA and and uh, the Book of Mormon are critical in that collaboration. And I yeah, think so Rodney Milgram's uh, what really kicked him off, I think, was that um, the Joel Kramer's film, 
Um, but it that's not the full story. I think the, I think it's the response from BYU. He's, he, he just, he's, you know, he thought, oh, BYU is going to have the answers to this. And he goes to BYU and they, he was equally horrified by, you know, what the apologists were saying about uh, Central America. So we're not entirely to blame for his, um, his emergence. So the, you're one, you're one, one catalyst, perhaps, <laughs> that uh, was involved in this whole uh, thing that happened. So yeah, so it just gives you a little background there, folks. You know, these gentlemen have been doing this for a couple of decades now. And uh, Thomas, of course, has been doing it since the early 90s, you know, to, to pursue this, uh, this story of, you know, the DNA, the Book of Mormon, the origin stories. Um, of course, I've had Dan Vogel on. He gives a fascinating talk about, you know, the Indian origins and and uh, the Book of Mormon and how that influence on the text. Uh, and then how now that the DNA evidence that's out there, it kind of has, and this is the thing, folks, you know, I, I tell people, well, the, you know, I'm an evangelical Christian, but I acknowledge that there's things with the Bible too. You know, I'm not here to attack the Book of Mormon. Uh, we, we can also acknowledge that the Bible has issues as well. And I do that very openly on this program. But I think um, what's so fascinating is that this did, uh, so now what we see is, for instance, the Book of Mormon changes in its uh, intro. Um, you know, there was all, you know, all the indigenous people, now they're saying it's just be some, right? So they're even acknowledging it just even so slightly. But then you had this other this other move with Rob Meldrums, which is going really strong, uh, building this uh, this group of really pushing back against, you know, the academics and, and what they would view as progressives and liberals that are, you know, maybe undermining their church with these things. And so that's really like this 20-year uh, journey that's been going on with, with, with all of us, with you guys and with, with Rod and everything like that. And, and, and I just want, before we talk about the paper, I just want you to talk about maybe the, some of the pushback you guys got when you put this stuff out there initially. What kind of pushback did you guys get? Simon? You wanna go for, oh. Um, well, yeah, I think, well, I had my story online that Thomas mentioned where I talked about the DNA. I think there was more of an apologetic response to that, but there was a massive apologetic response in 2002 and 2003. And this is when they brought in a whole range of geneticists uh, from BYU to, um, to criticize the work that we're putting out and you know, to, to downplay the power of DNA. And um, there were, Ryan Parr wrote a critique of my paper and it was, riddled with personal attacks on me. Um, so, yeah, there was a, just a huge, I think that probably about 15 or so papers were published, I think, within a, a few years, the range of authors, Keith Crandall, well, who else was there? Um, Michael Whiting, who teaches human evolution at BYU. He wrote a paper. Um, Scott Woodward was did a little bit of apologetics at one stage there, um, but it was basically <clears throat> downplaying the power of the science and confusing people um, with just hundreds and hundreds of pages of uh, apologetics. Um, and then uh, I think that pretty much led to um, so Thomas's work and my work probably led to then the change in the introduction to the, the Book of Mormon, where it's, it used to say that, um, sorry, that's, that's okay. 
Um, so Thomas, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, about the this, this the what you were getting there, kind of. Yeah, you know. So when when we were, were first publishing our work, the introduction to the Book of Mormon said that the Lamanites were the principal ancestors of the American Indians, and that had been in there since 1981. And it got put in there, and I, I think in response to efforts to advocate a limited geographic setting for the Book of Mormon in Mesoamerica. Uh, and the, you know, so the predominant view was that basically all or nearly all Native Americans had come from Israel. Uh, and the, the DNA evidence just obliterated that possibility. I mean, it eliminated that possibility. Uh, we did not find any DNA evidence for any population in the Americas uh, that came uh, from anywhere near the Middle East. Uh, instead, we find the closest uh, and closest relatives of living Native Americans, as well as the fossils that have been found uh, coming from North and East Asia, uh, and not from uh, the Southwest Asia or the Middle East, uh, in the, the, the places where the Book of Mormon had claimed. So uh, the kind of the short version of the story, I guess, is that that a limited geographic setting for the Book of Mormon went from being poo-pooed in the introduction of the Book of Mormon to becoming the primary defense. Uh, by 2006, the LDS Church had removed that statement about the principle of, or had modified it to say among the ancestors of American Indians instead of principal ancestors of American Indians. Uh, and then the, these scholars that, uh, and that Simon was mentioning, their, their primary uh, argument was that the Book of Mormon doesn't pretend to cover all of the Americas, but instead is a story of a small group of people in a limited region, their preferences in Mesoamerica, uh, and that uh, the DNA over time uh, got diluted out by uh, gene flow, genetic drift, uh, and other well-known uh, biological processes. Uh, of course, we had considered that in in my in my article, co the articles we we did together, article we did together, and, and Simon's book, we we considered those possibilities, but the the problem with that dilution uh, model is that uh, there's no uh, Israelite DNA to begin with, because that to be diluted out. Uh, in the the fossil record, for example, we just we don't find that that at all, uh, and so there's no evidence that that DNA from uh, the south from that ancient Near East ever made it to the Americas to begin with, to be diluted out uh, of of populations. Uh, so it the defenses, at least I I did not find very satisfying. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, it sh should say that Mesoamerica has been one of the most intensely studied uh, group in the Americas, uh, the Mayan population in particular, and um, thousands of Mayans have now been DNA tested, and this is no obvious sign of any, you know, Middle Eastern ancestry there. And we can find a couple of percent of Neanderthal DNA in everyone that's of European and Asian ancestry. Um, why hasn't that been diluted out? Um, so if, if there was a population there and they were reasonably significant and they were surrounded by um, American Indians, then we would find their DNA 
because the as the DNA moves into the American Indian population, that population would preserve it. Um, right. So it, it flies in the face of all of human genetics that we know that uh, this population would, the DNA would just disappear. If the DNA has disappeared, it never existed. Um, so we've got abundant evidence and it's got in the last, you know, it's 20 years since we wrote our stuff and it, DNA has just got, the evidence has just got a, a thousand times more robust um, and compelling. Mm -hmm. and, and it's important to mention that, you know, our, our work has been uh, replicated. We were summarizing the existing published material. Both of us were summarizing yeah. existing <clears throat> publishing material where our work was replicated by Deborah Bolnick and Jennifer Raff. Uh, and uh, demonstrated uh, very clearly in response to these limited geographies, particularly the ones in North America that have been claiming a connection with the X lineage, uh, they've validated our conclusions and refuted uh, the proposals of uh, Rod Meldrum and, and his community. Uh, so, you know, in, in terms of where the science has gone, uh, has gone strongly in the favor of the conclusions that we reached 20 years ago uh, and validating it, confirming them. So, I, yeah. Oh, I just wanted to well, finish your thought, Thomas. Finish your thought. I was going to say, I also had the privilege of doing uh, ethnographic uh, research in uh, Guatemala and Southern Mexico uh, in the regions where the Mesoamerican uh, model was proposed. And, and just like doing archaeology and uh, in, in Hopewell uh, sites or woodland sites of uh, Eastern North America, uh, we don't find any of the, the technology, the plants and animals that are described in the Book of Mormon, the, the events, the widespread destructions. Uh, we find none of that uh, in Mesoamerica or in the Heartland. Okay, well, there, there you have it, folks. The the, the, what's happened in the scientific developments over the last 20 years vis-a-vis um, -vis, um, DNA in the Book of Mormon, also the ar archaeological record, uh, and then also just we have this parallel story that of, of another group that kind of decides that they're going to be the reaction or the counter to these scientific papers, and it takes the form in, uh, in Rod Meldrum in particular um, with his firm foundation. And uh, you guys actually wrote a paper called Science and Fiction, Kenwick Man uh, slash Ancient One in Latter-day Saint Discourse. And uh, you and you, you and Simon Thomas and Simon wrote it along with Angela, Angelo Baca. Is that, that is it Angelo? Angelo. Angelo? Angelo Baca. Okay. And um, <clears throat> so you wrote this paper and and you talk, it's really interesting because you guys give like a kind of a background of Mesoamerica stuff, background on Heartland stuff. And then you kind of then talk about uh, this book that was published a couple of years ago, Face of a Nephite, um, DNA Studies in the Book of Mormon by David Reed, who I've had um, conversations with in the past. Um, I, I'm just curious, what made you decide to write this paper and talk and, and also and, and focus on this uh, is in particular? Thomas? Well, I guess Simon is kind of the, the start. So when that book came out, uh, they've sent a copy to Simon and He'd contacted me at that time. It was about what two years ago or so, I think. Probably, yeah. Yeah, um, and uh, he'd contacted me about right, us collaborating on a response, and I was busy on other projects at the time, and I kind of put him off a little bit. And okay. uh, then about a year ago, Simon started participating in uh, uh, some interviews on Mormon stories, 
uh, responding to that book. And then you invited me to come on Mormon Book Reviews to respond to uh, Rod, well, you brought Mar Mel Rod Meldrum on your show, and then you brought me on to respond to him. Uh, so you kind of played a role in this the, as one of the catalysts uh, in, in in getting me to go back to Simon and say, hey, remember that article you were talking about? Maybe we well, should do this. I, Thomas did the lion's share of the work on this, okay? So, it, you know, I might have suggested the idea, but I... I think I was suggesting the idea that you do all the work, Thomas. <laughs> um, I, I, I think I've formed the view over the years um, that I tend to like to get to a broader audience. I, I don't want to, you know, I, most people are fairly sensible. And if you just tell them that, the, the, not a dumbed down, but a, uh, if you can tell the story in language that they understand, that's very useful. And so I, I, I'd done a lot of, I've written little posts and put on Facebook and put on Mormon stories about the, the Kennewick man story. And uh, because Kennewick man um, posed an enormous threat to the heartland, from my perspective, it did at least, to the heartland group, because Rodney Meldrum has built the entire heartland story around his claim that the American Indian X lineage, the X DNA, mitochondrial DNA lineage, X2A, is derived from the Middle East. And this is plainly false. Um, and unfortunately for Rodney Meldrum, um, Kennewick man carries the X2A lineage, but it's not only, it's not the same lineage as American Indians carry today it's an ancestral lineage so it's it's one that they all descend from um, but of course the other problem for Rodney Meldrum was that Kennewick man has been absolutely categorically proven he's proven to be 9,000 years old and that doesn't align at all with anything that the heartlanders believe so um, they've gone in they immediately rushed in to to, to claim that, yeah, no, that's his DNA is, is from the Middle East. His, the dating's wrong. Has to be wrong because there weren't any humans before 6,000 years ago. Um, so I, that's what got my attention because, you know, he's got a huge audience, as you mentioned. He, he goes to, has large conferences and, and he's spreading these false claims about um, Kennewick man's DNA and... Uh, uh, his age and it all sort of really came to I was really taken out of that completely su surprised when I got this email from the managers of the publisher or the publisher of David Reed's book and they they sent his a copy an early draft of his book to to me to review and uh, so I got really really interested in Kenwick Mann and I've read most of the work that was done on him that was published in a book by Douglas Owsley, who's the um, professor of anthropology at the Smithsonian. And he led a very large team that, that studied the skeleton. And the short story is that the science has proven beyond a doubt that Kennewick man is related to all of the indigenous first Americans in the vicinity of where he, his bones were found. Um, which is in contrast to what 
even some scientists thought when the skeleton was first found that this this they thought Kennewick man had European ancestry. Um, but the science has shown very clearly that he fits right in the bell curve of um, the physical, you know, the, the distribution of um, say the, the skull shape of Kennewick man is is similar to other living Indigenous Americans today. So. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of what what I got in, how I got involved, and the, it's it's absolutely fascinating for scientists to, to look very closely at the amount of work that's been done on Kennewick Man, and it's just it, it is the largest amount of work that I have seen ever on an ancient skeleton. You would have to I would I don't know if you'd agree with that, Thomas, but it's just a huge amount of research was conducted on on, on that one skeleton. Yeah, and it's important to mention that there was a contentious debate as well and uh, between uh, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, and a select group of scientists, some of whom uh, participated in that, that book that, that you've mentioned. Uh, and uh, the, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, had, based upon the Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act, I uh, had decided decided to that, that the tribes would be able to decide what would happen to uh, the skeleton after it was found, uh, and this uh, because the, the tribes uh, wanted to rebury the skeleton, uh, this group of scientists sued the Army Corps of Engineers uh, to have some analysis done first, uh, and that that initial analysis. Uh, sorry, my cat was making, <laughs> making all, all sorts of noise here. Sorry, uh, but that that initial group of scientists included, uh, like Eugene Hun was one of my professors. He, he was the chair of my dissertation committee. He did the linguistic analysis uh, for the courts. Basically, when the courts ordered uh, that at least some analysis of the skeleton should be done before the, it is returned to the tribes. I, he did the linguistic analysis and basically showed that if you look at the languages of the Columbia Plateau in, in Eastern Washington, uh, that they show continuity uh, from uh, more than 9,000 years ago. So from the time of uh, Kennewick Man to the present, that there is an, an evolutionary relationship between the languages spoken today uh, and the likely distributions uh, that they had in the past, which we can make assumptions uh, about based upon the patterns we see in, in living populations and what we know about the evolution of, of human languages. Uh, and so, yeah, I agree that there was a, a fair amount of research, but because it had been controversial, I really felt that it's important to involve uh, indigenous authors in this project. And uh, Angelo Baca and I had been collaborating on, we, we had written an article together in this, this book, the LDS Gospel Topic Series uh, on DNA and the Book of Mormon, kind of bringing that up to date, but bringing, centering indigenous perspectives. Uh, and we had also published an article on repatriation issues in open theology uh, called, uh, uh, what was it? Rejecting Racism in Any Form. Uh, and in that, article we took on the church's essay and said look if we're we're serious about rejecting racism in any form uh, then we need to address the LDS church's uh, embeddedness with looting 
uh, and the problems with the, the origin stories of the Book of Mormon uh, is that if those gold plates had actually existed, they would have never belonged to Joseph Smith to begin with, but they would have rightfully belonged to the Seneca from whose lands they were taken. And so Angelo and I had been working on repatriation issues, and there's no bigger repatriation issue in the literature than Kennewick Man. So it isn't just the scientific analysis, it's the cult cultural, social, and historical analysis of uh, whether or how should sci scientists interact with uh, native skeletons, what rights do native people have to their own ancestors, uh, and what permissions do scientists need to have from descendant populations before they engage in study of uh, ancestral remains in a settler colonial society. Uh, and so uh, Angelo and I had all this material that never made it into this book already about Orson Scott Card and uh, mm -hmm. Trent Stevens and Jeff Meldrum uh, and their perspective on Kennewick Man. So our thought was to team up with Simon because he was doing some really excellent uh, scientific analysis uh, and team up kind of our cultural and historical analysis with his scientific analysis to uh, produce this article. And, and coincidentally, at the time we were starting to talk about an article, I got an email from the editor of Journal of Northwest Anthropology, uh, Darby Stapp, and, and Darby said, I would, I published there before, I published a couple of articles with them before. And he said, you know, we really like the, the work that you're doing. Would you consider uh, submitting another article uh, to our journal? And so I pitched the idea to Simon and Angelo that we, we go to the Journal of Northwest Anthropology. They were looking for, for more work from me. And uh, it was also a great audience uh, for this work because what we have in the Pacific Northwest here uh, are the anthropologists that were involved in doing this work, uh, the, the involved in, in finding and first analyzing the, the skeleton uh, and the tribal communities that were advocating uh, for uh, the repatriation of the skeleton, these are the primary readers of the Journal of Northwest Anthropology. So it was a great opportunity to get our research into a mainstream anthropology journal, a preeminent one for this region, and, uh, and address the, the debates about Book of Mormon, DNA, archaeology, etc. That's fascinating because I was uh, reading the paper and of course I remember reading Terrell Given's book by the Hand of Mormon and he talks about how he makes he almost made it sound like it was a conspiracy to hide these bones and stuff like that and um, and and I, I kind of I remember reading that and then it's been really good for me to kind of re-engage this conversation again because I think I would have at the time would have thought yeah maybe they shouldn't have done that they were burying evidence or something like that and then once I started talking to you Thomas and engaging Simon um, is that first of all the the science has been already been done. They were able to they weren't they're not covering up anything. We 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 have a, we do now know that 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 there's ancestors of this person, right? I mean that's what makes this amazing. And, descendants. And, yeah, descendants, descendants, descendants. Yes, yeah. sorry. Yeah, thank you. And and that's a fascinating yeah. thing. So I, I want to thank you for kind of really uh, opening my eyes to a lot of the the last, you know, all the new developments on this because I kind of still had I was still stuck in the '90s when it came to the Kenwick Man, to be honest with you, and uh, and and didn't realize that the, all this uh, all this progress we've made 
Um, Simon, so you, um, you're the one that kind of decided you want to get Thomas involved in this whole thing. And you had said you, you really studied a lot of stuff about the, 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 the Kenwick man, also yeah. known as the ancient one. And then, uh, of course, you, I guess it was Boyd Tuttle of Digital Legends who probably yes. sent you uh, this, uh, this, this copy of this to review, which I find interesting they would have sent it to you. Uh, they're very, uh, they, they, I find that fascinating. Uh, do you have any idea how, how they even, why they decided to send this to you in the first place? Mm, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think for a moment that they would have thought I would have come back with a positive. Yeah any positive suggestions. I came back with some pretty hard criticisms of the paper. I'm oh, sorry, the, the, it's a book, but it's basically a pamphlet. It's only about 60 pages long. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I just had enormous problems with the whole thing. And I uh, went through it very closely and I criticised um, a number of things that were wrong in the paper. Uh, the thing that troubled me the most, and, and this is where David Reed has taken advantage of a particular aspect of the discovery of Kennewick Man, and that is that his bones were washed entirely washed out of the, the bank of the river, right? So the scientists didn't know for certain how deep in the ground Kennewick Man was buried. And so it took an enormous amount of forensic analysis. Jim Chatters, who Thomas mentioned, is a forensic scientist, took a lot of very uh, careful and skillful forensic analysis to determine how deep Kenwick Man was buried, the way he was situated in the soil. But, um, and they, the bit, the most troubling thing was that um, Kenwick Man is probably the most well-preserved 9,000 year old skeleton that exists in the United States. 95% of the skeleton plus was preserved and they could get excellent collagen from the bones. Collagen is a protein that you can isolate purified from ancient bones if you have and then you can do a test of the amino acid content and so you can determine for certain if you've got amino acids and collagen that came from a human being okay you know for a fact that that came from Kenwick man if you've got good quality collagen they got they did 12 radiocarbon dates on good quality collagen and they're all 9,000 years old okay so we know for a fact that Kenwick man is 9,000 years old. The scientists, just out of interest, also radiocarbon dated carbonates. Now, carbonates are derived from rainfall, which carries dissolved carbon dioxide. It's actually rainfall is a, 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 a very dilute carbonic acid. And the rainfall had carried young carbon from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere down the profile. And it had deposited some on the bones of Kenwick Man, in the bones of Kenwick Man, on the soil around him. And so the scientists radiocarbon dated the carbonates that were attached to Kenwick Man and in the soil, and they were about 2,500 years old. Now, because those dates align perfectly with David Reed's conclusion that Kenwick Man is a Nephite, um, they're the only dates that he pays any attention to, and he rules out the collagen dates, which are the gold standard. So, and he, what's even more troubling is that not only did he have the courage to send his book to me, he had courage to send it to the scientists who did the radiocarbon analysis. And the scientists who did the radiocarbon analysis, Jim Tatters wrote back to him, 
um, and said on three occasions, the carbonates are not Kennewick man, they are, they were deposited, they come from rainwater, they're absolutely nothing to do with Kennewick man. And in spite of a, a scientist telling him in black and white that those dates are irrelevant, David Reed persisted and published his stuff and claims that the uh, Kennewick man is 2,500 years old and that his X2 DNA came from the Middle East and he's uh, almost certainly an ephite. Now we've had the entire genome of Kennewick man has now been sequenced and we find no Middle Eastern DNA in Kennewick man's genome. None. So these are, I mean, it's, it's absolutely laughable. And it's absolutely appalling in my view that this guy, David Reed, is still persisting in publishing this. It's just complete garbage. It's the stuff that he's written on Kennewick Man is complete utter nonsense. And it's, it's actually quite offensive to the scientists who've done the work. That, that uh, the cover of the book that you showed me is a, a clay reconstruction of what the scientists think Kennewick Man looked like. He looks white. <laughs> Um, but, uh, and unfortunately the scientists have no, no, that because they work at the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian has, um, just allows people to use anything that the scientists there produce. And so they couldn't stop, uh, David Reed from using that image on the front cover and many of the figures and illustrations in his book. So, I think um, it's important. It's important to point out though, Simon, that, that, that image is not the final stage of the reproduction. It's an earlier stage of the reproduction, though. There, so there's a series of photographs, uh, and that image there is the one from before they attempted to address the the facial features, and especially the skin tone. So in yeah. the actual Smithsonian reconstruction, they put a darker skin tone uh, paint onto that model uh, that uh, David Reed conveniently neglects, and he puts up basically a pale misrepresentation uh, of uh, that reconstruction, an earlier stage before uh, the, the painting uh, of, of skin tone was put onto it and, and features of the face. Now we point out, and, and I rely upon the really uh, excellent work of Paulette Steves, uh, a Cree and Métis archeologist who's, who's written a bit uh, about that reconstruction process. And she points out, you know, that that last stage is there's nothing in the fossil itself that tells you yeah, what to do yeah. at that stage. It's the assumptions of, of, of the, the people doing the reconstruction that come into play. And that brings me, if I can, I wanna highlight some general critiques that, that kind of threaded, that are threaded through the article of the portrayals of Kennewick Man, not just by David Reed, but by Orson Scott Card, by uh, Trent Stevens, by Jeff Meldrum, who's a cousin of, of Rod Meldrum, uh, and by uh, Terrell Givens. Uh, and uh, the, in this Latter-day Saint discourse about Kennewick Man, uh, there are some basic fundamental errors that are occurring. Uh, and one of those is a racialization of the skeleton. Uh, a good uh, scientist, in any basic, you take an anthropology 101 class, uh, you learn that race is a social construction. 
And you and I had a, a, a very long and detailed conversation about that in response to Rod Meldrum's book. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rehash all of that here, uh, but to say that race is a social construction, it's a modern construction, it did not exist in the ancient past. Uh, and when we label a skeleton using modern designations, we are misrepresenting the past. And Mormons scholars, all the, all the ones I've named, I uh, engage in that racializing of the past in a way that's not justified by a, a careful uh, anal scientific analysis, and it's not justified by what we know from uh, the social and historical sciences either. All right, so that racialization is a general problem that we see in Latter-day Saint discourse about the skeleton. It's not only Latter-day Saints that have done that. White nationalists uh, websites do the same sort of thing. Uh, it's also been done to some degree by the media. Uh, and even some scientists, uh, including Jim Chatters, getting a little careless in the terminology that they've used, uh, have fed into that, that popular tendency to racialize the past. Uh, so Mormons are participating in a larger cultural phenomenon. So it's not just the the racialization of the past, uh, but there is a misrepresentation of native perspectives uh, about Kennewick man in general. And so you see repeated in the Latter-day Saint discourse, you see, you know, Cheryl Gibbons saying that there's this conspiracy to hide the skeletons, that Umatillas reject science, and, and the Clinton administration was engaging in this political maneuver uh, to, to hide the skeleton. Or you see Orson Scott Card saying, you know that uh, that the Umatillas are. It, there's a big danger that the Umatillas are going to succeed in hiding away this uh, skeleton because they are anti-science. Uh, and that is a knowing many Umatillas, working uh, on a regular basis with Native scientists and Native uh, leaders. I know that that's not true. I uh, the tribes in, in our area, including the Umatillas, hire uh, native scientists. They hire anthropologists. Many of these scientists and anthropologists are themselves native, okay? Uh, and I, that characterization of native people as anti-science is, is false. It's a false representation of native communities. Uh, and it's a misunderstanding of what the debate was about. The debate was never an intent to hide the past. Uh, the debate was about whether or not it's appropriate for a settler colonial society to dig up the ancestors of indigenous populations and put them on display or do analysis without consulting the descendants. Uh, that's what the, the debate and the issue was in, in native communities, not a creation versus science sort of uh, argument. And, you know, Kim Tallbear, a Dakota anthropologist, has done a great book, great uh, analysis in her book, Native American DNA, not only of how DNA issues are being addressed in tribal communities, but she, she takes on Mormons too, uh, and looked at what happened when the, the Heartland model was presented in a genealogical listserv that she was doing some ethnographic research with. Uh, and she found that 
uh, the genealogists were very quick to shoot down uh, this uh, Meldrum proposal. Even Latter-day Saints on, on the forum uh, were quick to shoot down Rod Meldrum's uh, perspective. And so Kim Talbert, uh, you know, really it takes this analysis of, of Mormon genealogical debate and how the, the, the Heartland model comes into that and explains that really what is at issue for Native people is not a creation versus science thing. And she uses the Mormon example uh, as the misunderstanding about Natives and science, uh, that it's a question of, as I said earlier, uh, the propriety of who owns the, the past, who owns the ancestors of Native Americans, uh, that's the crucial issue. Uh, and that in fact, when you look closely at, at Native belief systems, uh, that there is a, a great tolerance for a diversity of stories and diversity of perspectives. There's even room for archeological and anthropological views of the past alongside indigenous stories of origins that may say things like, uh, we came from this place or we came uh, from this land that native people don't hold that story uh, necessarily in conflict with the science that says that the closest relatives are, are found in Northeast Asia. Uh, and that it's possible in, in a native worldview uh, to hold both at the same time. And so we highlight the work of native uh, Mormons, uh, people like P. Jane Hafen, Elise Boxer. Uh, Jane, Jane Hafen is a Taos Pueblo. Uh, Elise Boxer is Dakota. Uh, and their efforts to show, in the case of, of Jane, she's showing uh, that there are determinate versus indeterminate views of origins. In a determinate worldview, you have kind of one story that is the story, the true story, uh, and it replaces all others. Where in an indeterminate approach, uh, you have many stories. Uh, in, in that case, the Book of Mormon is one of many stories about the ancient American past. Okay, whether fiction or uh, historical, it's one of many stories. Where in the determinate approach, which is predominant in Book of Mormon studies, uh, is that the Book of Mormon becomes the, the measure by which all other stories are evaluated. Uh, and so uh, if something agrees with the Book of Mormon, then it's considered to be true and brought in and useful into Mormon studies. But if it contradicts the Book of Mormon, it's, it's treated as a, some impure Lamanite-ish source to use John Taylor's terms. Uh, and, uh, you know, is demeaned uh, by, by Latter-day Saint scholars uh, rather than treated respectfully. Hmm. Um, you know, this is a really fascinating conversation. And Simon, I, I want to um, wrap this up in a, in a little bit, but I, I want you, to, Simon, to kind of Maybe put a little bow on this. Uh, you know, you guys, uh, just just the, this whole entire process. What you've learned about it, uh, what this is, experience has been for you, and um, and where do you see this going? Uh, what's what's going to be next uh, in 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 publishing in, in in this endeavor? Because I think this is a story that's going to continue to be told 
And what, what do you think is going to be in the future of this? Uh, well, it's certainly been a fascinating 20 years um, because, uh, you know, really the, the heartland, which is really is basically Mormon fundamentalism. They've, they've got very fundamentalist views of the world. They're young earth creationist. Um, that, that whole sort of enterprise sort of emerged as a backlash against um, Brigham Young University and the Mesoamerican apologists. Um, but what's also fascinating has been to see the, uh, the complete dismantlement of the, um, the, the traditional apologists of BYU. They've been completely decimated, kicked out of BYU. And now they run their own little um, journal interpreter on the side. Um, so um, it's fascinating to see the war between the two apologist camps, between the Heartlanders and the, the BYU apologists, they they hate each other as much yes. as they hate us, I think. So, um, and they sort of, um, I mean, the, the criticisms that we have talked about of the uh, Meldrum camp are the exact same criticisms that the um, scientists at BYU would have used to criticise uh, Rodney Meldrum's work. Um, I don't. It's a, I don't know how long this sort of, this can survive in the church. Maybe it'll just go on for another 50 years where you've got one camp, uh, absolutely hard, hardcore fundamentalists, literalists. You know, the Book of Mormon is, is um, true and, you know, if science doesn't agree with it, you dismiss the science. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It's, uh, I'd be interested to, to hear Thomas's thoughts on this. Yeah, um, there's certainly been a, um, you know, when we first raised the DNA issue, there was a, a, a very well organized bunch of apologists at BYU writing in response to our work. Um, and now they're just pretty much all lone wolves, I guess, sort of mm. circling around the interpreter journal. Um, and I guess you've got Book of Mormon Central now, which is, I guess, a more popularist version of LDS scholarship. Um, yeah, well, you know, that, that brings up a, another thread of the article was on the LDS church's official response. And we really highlight the way that you've got basically four major responses we look at, the Mesoamerican, the Heartland, the LDS church's official response, and then indigenous responses. And what's interesting is that uh, I think the churches and the indigenous response is more close to the scientists than the Heartland or the Mesoamerican one. Uh, and so you, you get the, this interesting dynamic where the President Nelson of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is saying that the Book of Mormon is not a, not a history, it's not a textbook. Uh, and this is being repeated by native scholars who are saying, yeah, right on, President Nelson. Uh, and uh, you have, uh, you know, as Simon mentioned, the, the apologists have been isolated at BYU. BYU scholars are now publishing in uh, books like Producing Ancient Scripture or An Americanist Approach to the Book of Mormon that use a 19th century context for understanding uh, the Book of Mormon. And in fact, uh, I was 
just uh, invited earlier this or last month uh, yeah, to speak at the Book of Mormon Studies Association uh, and to present my uh, neophyte interpretive model of the Book of Mormon uh, to what was predominantly BYU uh, faculty and students. Uh, and, you know, invited uh, by the president of the BOMSA is Christopher Thomas, who's been on your show. Uh, and uh, so it, it's very interesting to see that, uh, that evolution and shift. The other evolution and shift that's very important is what's happening uh, in the indigenous Mormon community. So the University of Utah, for example, earlier this summer hosted a, a seminar called Indigenous Perspectives on Lamanite Identity. This was underwritten by places like BYU and Mormon Studies programs at, uh, I think all the major Mormon Studies programs at universities, uh, as well as a number of other sponsors. Uh, and it was indigenous scholars getting together. Uh, we did one big public uh, presentation or two big public ones that are available on the University of Utah's website. And then private dialogue uh, amongst uh, indigenous Mormons uh, and I was privileged as someone of predominantly settler ancestry to be invited uh, to participate. There were only a couple of us uh, and get to hear indigenous scholars wrestling with not just DNA in the Book of Mormon, but misrepresentations of indigenous people in the Book of Mormon more generally. Uh, and along, in a, you know, I can't, disclose because that was those were in private sessions so I can't you know say other than to say there were a diversity of perspectives uh, many of which uh, would be very similar to that that Angelo uh, shared uh, with in in his collaborations on this project uh, in fact he was one of the participants uh, and in uh, and, and so that that's what I'll say about that but I do want to highlight the work of of a Maori uh, scholar by the name of Hemoparachy Simon, uh, who is really taking on even indigenous Mormons who have some, uh, have a, some tolerance for uh, the Book of Mormon narrative, if you will, uh, as history. Uh, and so he has published some uh, great scholarship in the new sociology and uh, I forget the name of it. He's got a second article out as well, in the, and I forget the name of that journal. Uh, we cite his work here. We just barely got it in uh, in the production cycle. But he is challenging indigenous Mormons to really uh, be take the science seriously. He cites Simon and my work uh, and saying it, it, the Book of Mormon is clearly not a history. Uh, and that indigenous responses to the Book of Mormon need to highlight that fact. Uh, and uh, so his work is a fascinating new component in, and perhaps he's, well, I know from talking to him, he's got several other articles in the works uh, and these are getting published in mainstream academic journals. Uh, and so that, what that really means is that future scholarship on the Book of Mormon is going to have to engage more seriously these indigenous perspectives. And that was one of our goals in publishing this article uh, is that indigenous perspectives are taken seriously uh, by Book of Mormon scholars. And I think that's gonna be a necessity uh, of the future uh, and one that 
Mesoamerican advocates and Heartland advocates fall quite short on. It's, it's very clear from what Thomas is saying that there, it's, it's like it's just proliferating and we're just getting a whole range of perspectives now. And, and I think to a certain extent, this is probably because the church is now taking no position. Um, it's published a, a statement on its website saying it has no position on the geography, Book of Mormon geography. Um, and, and that's because there's, there's, um, it's safer for them to just say, sit back and say nothing. But they've actually had a, a, under the direction of the First Presidency, they had Kevin Pearson, I think it was, spoke at a fair conference. And he, you know, th they know that the Book of Mormon is under attack. And he just said, go for it, guys. Just write. Just write piles of apologetics. Doesn't matter. Don't worry too much about how accurate it is. Just write. And so he's just giving them free reign to just go away and, and defend the Book of Mormon on all fronts. And so the church is probably going to adopt the stance that, yeah, Rodney Meldrum, he's, he can carry on the way he's going and and he'll appeal to the fundamentalists in the church. And then you'll have the scientists um, with the more, probably the Mesoamerican model. And, and then you're gonna have all sorts of different perspectives on those from indigenous people and from, you know, other members of the church. So I think it's just gonna get uh, messier. You know, but, gentlemen, uh, I just- Having said that there are, you know, we've got some of the most respected um, LDS academics, Patrick Masson, mm -hmm. um, even Terrell Givens, I think, to a certain extent, and Bushman, acknowledging that there are so many 19th century parallels in the Book of Mormon um, that, yeah, you could, they can sort of understand that, uh, you know, there's so much influence of the 19th century on the Book of Mormon text, um, which is sort of satisfying because they, they're getting closer to the truth. And the mm -hmm. truth is that. Uh, it's an entirely 19th century fabrication. Um, so, well, uh, well, Simon and Thomas, I, first of all, I just want to thank you both so much for coming on the program. And I'll tell you, I have been aware of you guys for a long time. I've read your stuff. I watched you on the, the different interviews. It's a, it's a real thrill to have both of you on my show. Uh, it really means a lot to me that you guys took the time to do this and talk about this important paper that's come out. Now, folks, there are many, many um, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who are very faithful. I know there are many people on my program that are heartlanders. Uh, and I just feel it's important, like I said, that you know we hear all the different perspectives out there. So I want you to listen to what Simon and Thomas said today and just you know consider what they had to say, consider their words. And uh, and also know that these are two men that just are, they're just truth seekers, you know, they're looking for just to seek the truth. And uh, that's all a path that we should all be on. And uh, Thomas, you want to say something? Just one more thing I forgot to mention is that we've made this paper available for free. Yeah. Uh, on my academia uh, author page uh, and so if you could link that in the show notes uh, and and that way people that want to see the article can can do that but i'd also encourage you if you've got the resources to subscribe to the journal of northwest anthropology to encourage their work uh, and you can get it uh, there i think their subscription rate is only like 25 dollars a year or so I give them some support if you can, but otherwise it, it'll be available free on my academia. Page. Well, I, I just want to say too, folks, that Thomas is going to be coming back on with Angelo, and we're going to talk about more of the indigenous indigenous aspects of the paper as well. Um, you alluded to it some today, and I, I want to thank you so much, Thomas, because you really, over the last year that you and I have been, a year and a half now, but since it's been about a year since we did our first interview, 
is that, you know, you've really helped educate me on a lot of the latest of the anthropology. I remember I've even asked you questions about different things, and you've been very helpful to me in, in understanding these things so much better, and also appreciating the, the, the importance of Indigenous voices to be heard. And I really appreciate uh, Christopher Thomas told me that you gave a really great presentation at the Book of Mormon Studies Association, um, a real, a, a great Let's, say, like, let's engage the Book of Mormon, but let's also engage the indigenous voices. And more importantly, let's let the indigenous voices engage the Book of Mormon and let, let's hear their story, which I think is so, so important. And I appreciate you kind of me being, I, I didn't know anything about this stuff. And, and, and I'm, I'm just glad that I got a, this relationship with you. And Simon, I, I just, I want to turn to you real quick. Okay. So this past weekend, 60 Minutes Australia, they, um, they did that story about the church finances. And I guess this week you're going to be interviewing with John DeLynn and uh, also with the Neville gentleman uh, who is uh, the barrister who was in, in that episode. Um, why don't you just talk a little bit about that? What is your what is your reaction to the episode that just aired this weekend and, and maybe preview what you're going to be doing with John DeLynn? Yeah, I was, um, I, apart from the fact that they had missionaries going, one missionary walking down the right, street, and knocking, I was a bit... Um, that's more a reflection that they just don't know an awful lot about Mormons and right. than anything else. Um, but um, I was actually closely involved with the, the research. In fact, I discovered the fact that um, the church in Australia was donating tens of millions. It's now amounts to almost $400 million. The Australian LDS church has donated to humanitarian aid in the last uh, seven years, $400 million. Um, and yes, yeah, so I just got really su surprised by that um, discovery. And I, I discovered that because I'd just seen the Ensign Peak story where, you know, the, the church is sitting on a nest egg of $100 billion. And because the Australian charities have to publicly file their financial records for each year, I was able to go back into the records and look at um, in detail where that money was coming from. And it's really quite clear to me that Australians have not become 3000 times more generous uh, in a matter of years. There is clearly Salt Lake money coming into Australia and being passed through the Australian accounts and going off to humanitarian aid. Um, and why would the church do that? And the only reason is to attain, obtain a tax advantage. Um, Australia is a very secular country and very few. In fact, I think the LDS, all other churches, if you pay tithing or put money in a plate, you don't get any tax back on that. Um, because the, the government knows that the vast majority of the money that goes to churches is used to run the church. And government doesn't think that they should be in the business of um, subsidizing a church running its business or it's running its church so the church is doing this in order to look like they're extremely charitable funneling money from the us through australia in order to get 100 percent tax deductibility on tithing because that's what mormons have they can currently claim 100 percent of their tax back so anyway i together with um neville who was here when he saw the complaint that i was writing to the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits not Commission, 
he um, he was also deeply troubled by what they were doing, and he he'd actually had a little bit of involvement in some of the meetings around that time when they were discussing the tax situation in Australia. Um, and so uh, yeah, we submitted a complaint, and uh, and then uh, journalists at the Age got involved, and then sixty Minutes and with the state. Okay. So there is a there is a genuine problem here and unfortunately for the church the defense that the church abides by the law and they're bloody bloody blah that ain't going to wash um, they are defrauding the Australian population of tax dollars and uh, they should be held accountable so um, yeah so some of the reporting on this side something that uh, Jana Reese wrote which I think was just a little bit inaccurate Mm -hmm. And so we just wanted to go on the record with Clar uh, clarify some things and yeah. clarify it and just spell out what's going on um, because it's, it's, it's all publicly available data and information, but it is confusing because the church has five charities listed on the Australian Charities Register and there's no clear, it doesn't clearly say where money, which, because money moves between these accounts. And it never says, it just says an income for an account, but it doesn't say where it came from this, another account or whatever. So um, but it's, um, that's what happens when you create shell, uh, shell accounts or, you know, basically um, most of the accounts don't have any staff involved with them. So they're just um, shell accounts or something. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate you giving us the, the preview. I guess this week you will be taping on Mormon stories about this story. Of course, you can watch my interview with Nigel Kennett, who was the, the gentleman who uh, brought the, his story to the uh, Fifth Estate in Canada. And of course, I also posted a response from Jonathan Neville, uh, who was uh, giving a faithful response to these news programs. Gentlemen, Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. And Simon, thank I you. End, uh, let me end with one last thought. That oh, I please borrow do. from P. Jane Hafen. Uh, and she said, listening to Native people tell their own stories is a decolonizing act. Well said, sir. Well said. Simon, thank you so much for coming on the program. Final words? Do I get to one final word? Please do. Can I quote Jennifer Raff, who's a well-respected geneticist? And she just wrote this last year in Scientific America. All genomic studies rule out the possibility that the first peoples mixed with Europeans or Africans or any other population between before 1492. Okay, well, so for you diffusionists out there, that's a pretty solid, pretty strong statement there, folks. So Scientific America and uh, you, that's absolutely in line with the scientific community. So okay. It's the first Americans all the way. <laughs> okay, Fascin fascinating stuff. Well, again, this was a great episode. I really enjoyed this conversation we had uh, today, uh, gentlemen. Um, I just want to remind you all, don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button and don't forget to hit the notification bell for when a new episode comes out. Also, there are going to be links in the description to the paper. Uh, also links in the description for those of you who like to support the program uh, on Patreon, on PayPal, as well as the merch store, mormonbookreviews.com. We've got hats and mugs and all these great things. And I uh, just leave your comments. Tell us what you tell 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 us what you think. Uh, what did you think of this episode? Those of you who are faithful Mormons, what did you think about this idea that the Book of Mormon is primarily a 19th century document, as they're as they're stating into the, tonight's episode? And what did you think about the DNA stuff? Um, and so I'd like to hear from you. Very interesting stuff. Uh, just one quick other thing too. Just remember, all the voices 
of the restoration will be heard here on Mormon Book Reviews.